0: welcome to mormon book reviews where an evangelical encounters the restoration i'm your host stephen pinecker i'm very excited today to have a special guest on the program christina Rossetti. how are you today
1: i'm good thanks for having me on
0: i just want to give a little background uh christina is a, a phd she got her phd from uc riverside she's assistant professor of humanities at utah tech she uh has worked on the study and li- the history and lived experience of mormon fundamentalism in the inner mountain west. and We're going to get to that later on. Uh, that's really cool stuff. Uh, but one of the reasons I asked Christina to come onto the program today was I met you last year at the Mormon History Association. And I kind of just, I always like to know people's backgrounds. And that's when you told me, well, yeah, I was raised. I was four square. And I was like, Ooh, four square. This is awesome. You know, it's really interesting because I'm from the Midwest and I'm based in the southeastern United States. And there really aren't a whole lot of four square out this way. So like my friend Christopher Thomas divvies it up this way. The Southeastern United States, it's Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, Pentecostals. The Midwest is Assemblies of God. Uh, the West Coast is uh, Churches of the Four Square. And the Northeast is, uh, well, they're just all going to hell. So uh, <laughs> that's a joke. <laughs> but uh, we break it all down that way. So that kind of gives you like, there's almost like regional Pentecostal bodies throughout the country. Would that be a fair assessment?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: So this is great. So Christina. Um, I want you to talk a little bit about your background, your religious background growing up um, before you became Foursquare. and then we'll just continue from there.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't I guess I don't think I had like an interesting religious background. Um, my mom was uh, she is currently pretty generically Protestant, um, but she had an experience being EV free, evangelical free, being independent Baptist, her parents become independent Baptists. Um, so she has kind of a diverse Christian experience, and now she's pretty non-denominational. Um, and my dad was raised Catholic. He's no longer Catholic uh, practicing. Um and so I come from that background. Everything's kind of just like gen- very generically Christian. Um We went to church on Christmas and Easter, you know, like most people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I went to Episcopalian school most of my life, um not because we were Episcopalian, but just because, they were good schools and um, that was, it was available. It was right by our house. And so I went, I didn't know what an a Episcopalian was. I, I knew that it like looked Catholic, but um, I had no idea what that religion was, which is funny because now my, my boyfriend's an Anglican priest. So I'm like, I, I really know what Episcopalianism is now, oh, cool. um, but yeah, but like in, you know, growing up, I had no idea. I got ashes on my head, but and my parents were like, do you know what is happening? And I was like, no. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, a pretty generic religious upbringing. Um, I would have called myself Christian because that's what you do when you're any kid in the U.S. who has somewhat Christian parents.
0: Well, it's so fascinating to me. So so it's, it's interesting because so often you, a lot of people who are like in the evangelical charismatic movement were kind of born into it, but then you have these uh, churches that A lot of people are converts who convert, and often it's like around high school time, maybe when they're dealing with things in life, and they have questions, and they're growing up, and they got all these other things going on in their head, and their body's changing, all this kind of stuff, and often you'll have, um, you know, some kind of religious experience or conversion encounter, maybe talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I went to a school in Orange, in Southern Orange County um, for high school. I really didn't want to go to, like most people who left the Episcopalian Middle School ended up going to a Catholic high school. I didn't want to go. My parents weren't super excited about it either. And so I went to a public high school and everyone was getting saved, which is like, I mean, Southern Orange County, everyone's getting saved in high school. I mean, you're like, you know, Mm -hmm. and most people, most people who were getting saved in my high school were getting saved through Compass Bible Church, which was a pretty well-known reformed church. So, um, really my only point of reference for really religious kids was very conservative reformed Calvinism. And I was just like uninterested. Um, I took for my like English class, my last one, I took, um, the Bible as literature. And so like, and it was taught by the youth pastor for Compass Bible Church. And so like it, everything was very Christian, even though it wasn't. And I, um, I took an art elective with my best friend. And I remember one day she came in and she she had gotten saved. Um, but she had gotten saved at a church in San Clemente, California called um, Living Hope Christian Fellowship. And she invited me to youth group to Altered Youth, but spelled with an A, like Altered youth um and I didn't really want to go because I was like I'm not I'm not I don't do you like this isn't something part of part of my world um but she was like oh it'll be great we always get McDonald's before and I went and everyone was really nice of course it's like the very quintessential story like everyone's really nice to you and I kept going to youth group um I really loved the youth pastor's wife um Kelly Dion she was and still is a really incredible woman um, and I, yeah, I just kept going to youth group and, um, I got saved. I got saved and I, I had no idea what this religion was. Um, I just thought, I didn't really know that there were differences in Christians. I knew that they had Hebrews 13 eight on the wall. That didn't mean anything to me at the time. You know, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it had a symbol on the wall, uh, which I came, which came to be very, <laughs> I came to know very well. Uh, and it took a while before I learned that it was the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel. Okay. And I became deeply invested in okay. the Foursquare Church and the mission of, of its founder.
0: Okay, so now before we get into the history, which I think is really fascinating, audience, you're going to love this story. Um, I just want to ask you, when you say you got saved, what what happened?
1: I mean, I... So I, I did ballet, for most of my life um a lot of people probably are like what <laughs> um I did ballet for a lot of my life I quit for a myriad of reasons but one of them was um tendonitis in my hips um and I like had this really hard time walking like I would wake up in the middle of the night with like severe pain and I would have to like crawl to my parents bedroom and like get them to help me and um I just remember like my mom asked me told me to pray about it but I was like not silly um and you know then all of a sudden everyone at this church that is a very charismatic church starts telling me to and I do and I I end up believing that I was healed um and I mean the great kind of irony of that is I was (laughs) I mean I, I reframe the experience a lot different now um but I haven't I mean my hips better right like I haven't had this problem again okay and I like I've never woken up in the middle of the night with severe pain again, like and to this day. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but um, I just I'm like, well, that's it, like that's it. And so I go to church, um, I go to youth group the next time, and I go to my youth pastor, and I'm like, I want I want to be a Christian. I want to I want to do the prayer, and he does the prayer with me, and a few weeks later I was baptized um, by my youth pastor in the church pastor. I was baptized in at North Beach in San Clemente in the ocean. Um, it was like coming off of red tide. It was a rough situation. It was really <laughs> cold. Um, uh, yeah, I was baptized in the ocean. I I for Mormons listening, they'll find it funny that my head didn't go all the way underwater. And so I was wondering like if it counted, um, even though, like, you know, Pentecostals don't have that kind of stringent view of ordinances. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was like, does this count? And everyone was like, yeah, you're fine. <laughs> so <laughs> Um, yes, yeah, so I was baptized in the ocean, and um, I went to camp, and I, you know, I went to the Foursquare Convention, and I, I, I was it, I was
0: Foursquare. Wow, okay, so you're, four, so you're healed, and you get saved, and you get baptized. Uh, before we go, I'm just did you get baptized in the Holy Spirit? No, and this
1: is actually kind of an early thing that got me out, um, because I, so I, like, for those who don't know, the Four Square Church is Pentecostal. Um, And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But the Four Square Church historically was one of the Pentecostal churches that believed that you had to speak in tongues to be saved. You have to be baptized in the Holy Ghost. And that only means one thing. Um, And so, and like, I wanted, like, I wanted to be a missionary. And I looked at the missionary forms and it said date of baptism, date of water baptism and date of baptism in the Holy Ghost on the forms. And I can't answer that. Um, and so I would like to sit at home all night and like pray and be like, I just need to like, I need to speak in tongues. Um, and I couldn't. I went to camp and everyone is like, you know, there's like the night of camp where everyone's baptized in the Holy Ghost. I can't do it. Um, I know some people are pretending to do it. I was told how to how to lie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um I didn't, you know. Good, I mean good for you. I, just, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't speak in tongues. And so um I it was really hard because then, you know, when when the idea of what your salvation is rests on a physical manifestation that you can't do, and you really believe you are saved. What is, what is salvation? Um, and so, I mean, without kind of knowing it, that was really kind of an early thing that bothered me about the International Church of the Foursquare Gospel.
0: Okay. So you got something on your shelf, if you will, early on in your experience.
1: Like day one, right? Day one. I don't like, and everyone I know not everyone. Most people I know speak in tongues or something like, or you know, are acting like they do. Yeah. So, the whole thing. Good for that.
0: Yeah. No, I, I, uh, I, I appreciate your integrity for not pretending because that is a problem that I think that ha- it does have happened, and um, so yeah, thanks, thanks for you know keeping it real there and having integrity. Um, I, I want to um, talk about the history of the Church of the Four Square, and let's start with its founder, who you told me the other day you loved her and wanted to become her.
1: Oh yeah. I love. I loved. So her, um, the person who founded it was sister, Amy Semple McPherson. Um, she was from Ontario, Canada, and she was, she was Salvation Army. And like for a lot of people, you know, they see Salvation Army stores and they're like, they don't realize that's a, that's a denomination. Um, she was a member of the Salvation Army and she starts preaching and she does like tent revivals. And she has a particular sermon that she gives in 1922, where she preaches um, on Ezekiel 1, which I know like most people are like, why are you choosing Ezekiel 1 <laughs> to preach on? Um, but she preaches on the vision given to Ezekiel and Ezekiel 1, where you see a man, a lion, an ox and an eagle. And she looks at that and she thinks it's a representation of the full gospel and the full gospel is a four square gospel um and so it becomes these symbols become and i have a it's my dog i'm sorry i have a i have her sermons right here oh. um lost and restored It's the centennial edition of amy it's like so hard to see but oh
0: no it's good i can get I think we can make it up that's really cool
1: but she ends up I guess this one doesn't have the picture, but she does, she ends up preaching that there's a four square gospel in the four square way. And the four squares are Jesus Christ at that. She kind of comes to imagine that this symbol in Ezekiel is representative of Jesus as the savior, the baptizer, the healer, and the soon coming King. Okay. Um, and the symbol now doesn't have the ox and everything it used to. And it used to be a wild symbol. Um, now the symbol is this so Jesus Christ as Savior, Baptizer, Healer, and King. Oh, Savior, Baptizer, Healer, King. Um, okay, it's my old hymnal. Um, and so that symbol is on all the Four Square churches. It's it's every, it's everything. And she ends up founding a church in the year, in the next year, 1923. Um, she goes to Los Angeles and she founds the International Church of the Four Square Gospel. Um, and she found it in Echo Park and you can still go. And I mean, we used to go and it's called Angela's Temple and it's, it's huge. It It's one of the original mega churches um, in the United States. It held 5,300 people. It still wow. does. Um, but wow. when, but when Amy was there, it would hold 10, up to thousand. 10, 10, thousands of people came to see her. Um, and she, she was larger than life. Like she would come in wearing like these like white gowns holding big roses and she would do these like productions and um you can listen to sermons of her she was a fiery preacher um she would go into hospitals to heal people she I mean it's it's like she's she was a faith healer for anyone who like is familiar with a lot of faith healers after um a lot of faith healers today claim her anointing or her mantle like Benny Hinn is said to like go and lay on her grave in Forest Lawn to like soak up her anointing. Um, Catherine Coleman believes she follows in the path of Amy. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, she really lays a foundation (laughs) for this. And uh, she was the first woman on the radio. She founds a radio station. Uh, It was a whole thing. Like she, she's founded Life Pacific College to like train ministers. Um, And the forest, I mean, it takes off. Like if you're Pentecostal in California, like or you're joining a pentecostal religion in california like it's assembly of god Foursquare square or vineyard and they're all kind of like wrapped up in their history in a lot of ways
0: yeah yeah excellent and you know it's so fascinating because think about this women just got the right to vote right as this is happening yeah. she is truly a pioneer and, and just so y'all, you, you know, I've talked about this before. So in 1906, you had the Azusa Street Revival, which has gave us the modern day uh, Pentecostal movement thereabouts around 1906. it's a kind of a period of time. And so when she gets there, you have Pentecostalism is kind of established, especially in, because Azusa Street's in, in the Los Angeles area. So you have this really dynamic thing already going on. And then she comes in and just shakes things up.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it, And and, I mean, one of the things that made Pentecostalism compelling to people is in a time of immense segregation, um, Pentecostalism was one of the first religious settings to integrate. Um, They let women preach. It was, it it was, and and that caused a lot of scandal to people outside of the Pentecostal movement, Um, but it was compelling to a lot of people. And so, I mean, and she, when she built Angela's temple, people joined. And I mean, people heard it on the radio, people, people were into her. (laughs) And I mean, I was into her. I love, I mean, I thought she was rad. I mean, you know, she ends up having a very complicated life um, where, you know, she's married like multiple times. She stages her own kidnapping to collect the ransom. (laughs) Um, She does these like pretty wild like fundraising campaigns to build Angela's temple to get it out of debt, um, which it does. Um, And then she dies of a drug overdose, unfortunately, at a fairly young age. And so, you know, she has this incredibly complicated life and i mean aside from the more sordid aspects like i just i wanted to be her like i i mean i i dragged people to venice beach every weekend to like tell people the gospel like oh, wow. i i mean i went to the dream center and we knocked on doors in the projects to like convince <laughs> people to join the four square church wow. um which and like none of this was like you know I mean, I have a lot of, I look back on it with a lot of mixed feelings of, I I shouldn't have done that. Um, I mean, I'm not like a missionary now. So yeah, you know, yeah so I, I definitely, I was gonna, I was, I was going to spread the four square gospel. So
0: I'm really curious. So what was it that made you fall in love with Amy? Well, just, was there something, a sermon you read, something she did that said, man, I want to be
1: like her. Uh, she has a sermon called the Scarlet Thread, which I really love. I mean, I loved the whole thing of like, the Foursquare Gospel. Um, I mean, and she also, I have this book, if anyone's interested in reading about the history of the church from her perspective, it's called This Is That by Sister Amy. I mean, this is her, like she's, you know, that. I mean, she's like this 1920s glamour icon. Um, she was so compelling in so many ways, but, you know, she she had the sermon called The Scarlet Thread where it's it's pretty supersessionist. Um, but it, she like traces the blood of Christ through like the whole Bible. And then she's like, and you have to grab hold of the scarlet thread and let it guide you home. Um, and I was like, oh, I, I want to do that. <laughs> so wow. I, yeah, I just, I mean, I preached that sermon a lot.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. So this, oh, wow. So, um, maybe just talk a little bit about maybe your experience in that group, some of the highs and the lows that you experienced. Um, I, I just want to hear just generally speaking, attending a service, uh, Uh, you're uh, associating and affiliating and making friendships with people. Just talk about maybe the social dynamic of belonging to that group.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I was, so I was part of a four square church that was fairly, I mean, it was definitely charismatic. It was definitely Pentecostal. Um, But if you had walked, you know, it wasn't like vineyard or anything. And like, we would actually say that like a lot of the youth would be like, well, we're not vineyard. Um, And for those who don't know vineyard is a charismatic movement that is, very charismatic Mm -hmm. in their worship services in everything. And so we would actually joke and be like, well, we're not, we're not vineyard people. Uh, (laughs) And, and that's true. (laughs) We weren't. um, But, you know, I mean, it was, there's a lot of dancing in church services. You know, there's always, it's like a running joke and stereotype, but it's true that there's always someone with a tambourine um, and, you know, people speak in tongues and people get healed and people it's, you know, it's a very charismatic, lively service. Um, but the thing that really caught, struck me is it, it's a situation where people really believe it, and I mean, I I made a lot. Most of my friends were Foursquare. Um, I ended up, you know, dating in the Foursquare church, and um, the person I dated, you know, we both kind of left together. But ever like I remember so vividly this like woman who I became very good friends with, and she ended up getting she got married, you know, in Foursquare like to someone that was in our youth group and she lost her wedding band and she was, she was just praying that it would come back and praying that, and then she found her wedding band just like on the floor and she knew it was the Lord. And this like earnestness of belief that God is part of is absolutely intimately connected to the minute details of your life. Um, it was just, it was an earnest belief that was also marked by absolutely extraordinary markers of faith.
0: Mm, interesting. Give me an example of that, of a, an extraordinary marker of faith.
1: I mean, I remember going to camp to, you know, and I always joke for like people who aren't, haven't never been to a Pentecostal camp. I'm always like, oh, have you seen Jesus camp the movie? Cause like that was my camp experience. Um, but college camp, I went to college camp because it was, you know, camp started, I joined the church and then, you know, I go to college And, um, I remember, you know, on the night that everyone is like getting saved and, you know, people are speaking in tongues and people, some people couldn't. And I remember the man in front of me was laying down and a bunch of the youth leaders were going to cast a demon out of him because Mm. that was why he couldn't speak in tongues. And, um, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know if he actually ended up speaking in tongues, but it, it was, it was a really intense experience. Like every, I mean, and I guess. Now, when I see people speaking in tongues, it's very average to me because it was so much of my early Christian experience, but it's a lot of speaking in tongues. It's a lot of faith healing. It's a lot of like putting your hand on someone and putting your arm in the air and like casting demons out of them. Um, I remember reading a book called Pigs in a Parlor.
0: Oh yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: You you read it? (laughs) Yeah, reading Pigs in the Parlor on like how to do deliverance. Like It's like an at-home guide to deliverance ministry. And um, my parents like traveled once And I got scared in the house. I was convinced that there was a demon in it. And I like, you know, get my olive oil and like, I'm going to go exercise the house. I'm going to deliver the house of the spirit that's in it. Um, it, I mean, you know, like, and it was so, that was just so every day. And my parents, you know, my parents were like, what are you doing? Like, okay. They were always very supportive of me, but they were always, they're also like, okay, (laughs) you you don't need to deliver the house. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That book's wild. Is wild. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, and I ended up looking into going to life Pacific. Um, I didn't go to life Pacific. I I think, I thank God that my parents were like, no, you need to go somewhere. That's not life Pacific Bible college. Um, I ended I did go to a four square seminary for a year, um, called King's King's college. It's King's university now. I think, I don't know. Um, I took biblical Hebrew, I took foundations of Pentecostal theology, and, you know, I took a bunch of class, a few classes, and then I, I ended up leaving. Um, but yeah, I was like, I was deeply invested.
0: <laughs> wow, this is wild. Yeah, you know, pigs in the parlor, man. So I grew up in a, uh, in a Baptist church to practice deliverance on the south side of Chicago. And there was a pretty, he was, a, the their pastor was pretty well known in deliverance ministry as well. And pigs in the parlor was one of the standard works, if you will. Of, uh... Oh
1: yeah. I, and like, for those who don't, it has like a scary cover. It's mm-hmm. like, it has like a pig, like, um, like a red
0: cover. Was yours a red cover?
1: No, mine had like, it was pink. Cause it had a giant pig. Yep.
0: Pink. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: and yeah. And I mean, deliverance was so part, was so part of it, like in terms of like Jesus as the healer, like that also meant spiritual healing. And so like, I remember there was like, you know, an altar call for people who have insomnia or nightmares and the spirit of insomnia was cast out of me. Um, Like everything is connected to a spirit. Everything negative is connected to a spirit of something that can be cast out of you. So it it was, it's a very common, that's very common language. You know, that's not, it's just like, Oh, I have a spirit. I have a spirit of anxiety. I have a spirit of depression. I have a spirit of whatever. Um, So yeah, deliverance ministry was huge.
0: I, I didn't know, um, you don't see that typically in some of the other Pentecostal branches, that intense uh, exorcism stuff. That's very fascinating. I, I appreciate you sharing that with me and the audience. Um, I, I wanted to ask now, so you're seeing these like manifestations, you actually get a healing. Um, what What's kind of some of the things that happened that kind of led you out?
1: Um, I mean, I couldn't speak in tongues. So I wanted to be, a, I wanted to be, a you know, I wanted to be a four-square minister, but I can't because I don't speak in tongues. Um, And it wasn't so much that I couldn't be a minister, but it was, it was kind of realizing like there's weird barriers to what your salvation means when you're, when you're Pentecostal, um, when you're specifically four-square Pentecostal. And that was kind of strange to me, but also my whole salvation is in question. Why am I doing this if I'm not really saved? And so that was really hard. Um, Around the same time I start college, you know, I move. Well, I don't move, but I, you know, I'm going to a college that's further away. And, um, you know, there's more non-denominational churches than there are four square churches. Um, I start going to a non-denominational mega church. Um, I start going to Rock Harbor um, with my boyfriend at the time. And that kind of just becomes what we're going to do. Um, also around the same time, you know, there became, I kind of started to recognize a lot of problems with women's leadership in the four square church that it was founded by a woman, but they've never had a woman president again. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of strange to me. Um, I actually had an academic advisor at Azusa Pacific. I looked into going there and I said, I wanted to be a minister. And he was like, well, you're a woman. So
0: it's, you know, it's so fascinating. That's, that's one of the detriments of the Pentecostal movement is that originally it was definitely much more a female oriented. As a matter of fact, within the Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, women cannot be bishops. Um, and so they keep them. So that even though they can be pastors, they can't be bishops. Uh, my friend, uh, well, I, I won't get into the politics of that particular church, but um, yeah. <clears throat> but uh, it is interesting that that often happens, that even churches that have a matriarchal st- structure or ideas of having female leadership eventually becomes like the Seventh-day Adventist church. I, d- I don't know the last time they've had a female head sem- since uh, since their founder, right. Ellen White, right? Um, and so so definitely, so you're seeing a barrier there. Now, I just—I do have a quick question for you. One of the best known ministers, current ministers, or I don't even know if he's still alive, is Jack Hayford. Did you ever have any interactions with Jack Hayford?
1: Uh, Jack Hayford was the president of the Foursquare Church when I was Foursquare, and that's really the the extent. Yeah, he was the president of the church, which I like. I mean, I say that into like a largely Mormon audience when the president of the church is like. I mean, Jack Hayford wasn't really that. I mean, he spoke at at the conference which was another kind of weird moment for me when, I mean, I really liked, you know, like I mentioned that like my church was Pentecostal charismatic, but that was it. Um, Going to the Foursquare convention was the first time that I was like, oh no, I'm not Pentecostal, I'm Foursquare. Like it was like the denominational identity of it was became really intense. Um, And I remember (laughs) sitting in the convention, it's in the Anaheim convention center. So it's like thousands of people. And everyone lifts up their arms and says, we are four square. And I was like, I don't think I'm four square. (laughs) It was the first first time where I was like, I'm actually not this weird. Um, And that was kind that was really strange. And it was at the same time where I was starting to go to a non-denominational church. Um, Around that time, I started developing a really intense anxiety around dying. And all of this kind of comes together. And I'm like, I'm, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm four square. Non-denominationalism is fine. Um, and then I became like you know the slippery slope argument of like really foursquare, non-denominational, lukewarm Christian
0: out. Yep, yep, yep. You you definitely yeah, you you definitely followed that path and they uh that's this is great. So, you're how about how old were you when you uh, finally transitioned out of the church of the foursquare?
1: Um, I was twenty two.
0: Okay.
1: I think. I, uh, no, I was 21. I had it was like late being 21.
0: Okay, okay. And then, um, and then so you go into the non denominational world. Did, was there anything you wanted to talk, uh, talk about with, with regard to that whole situation?
1: Um, I had a pretty generic non denominational experience. Um, I was part of a church that was, um, you know, it was pretty generically non denominational, it's like a Southern California mm-hmm. church. Um, but we did have, <laughs> uh, so I was already like kind of anxious about dying, which ends up really being like, what is Christianity? If like my fear of death is not assuaged at all. Um, and so that, you know, there was like kind of internal conflicts about that. Um, and at the same time we get a new pastor who came from a church in, um, Michigan that was run by a very controversial pastor named Rob Bell. Okay. (laughs) And yeah, you didn't think there was going to be an emergent church element just mm-hmm. wedged in there.
0: Okay.
1: Um, and we had to have like a bit, so I was doing- Well, just
0: real quick, what was the emergent church? Should maybe just talk a little bit about that, what that was all about. And Rob like Bell.
1: Move, so there was like a movement toward kind of, um, adapting, like what is Christianity in the modern world, adapting Christianity for the youth, you know, all of that. Um, and Rob Bell becomes like a really foundational figure in this movement of making Christianity relatable and cool. And a lot of people thought that that meant watering down Christianity. Um, and you know, Rob Bell follows this like slippery slope path Mm -hmm. where now he like, he only preaches in a comedy club in, in LA. Um, and he writes a lot of really popular books. And, um, and so I, you know, I'm, like part of this situation, I was doing a lot of youth ministry. I was also, um, part of the alpha team, which is like alpha is like a ministry for like people who are new. It comes out of Holy Trinity, Brompton in England, Bear Grylls, the survivalist did it. Um, and so I was part of, you know, all of these ministries. And then we have to have this big meeting for everyone who's involved on, are we an emergent church? And I was like, what is an emergent church? Mm -hmm. And so of course I read Rob Bell's book, love wins, which is like, maybe there's not a hell, and all of a sudden, like my fear about dying is I'm like, well, if there's not a hell or a heaven, maybe there's nothing. And then my biggest fear is true. Mm. And so Rob Bell kind of leads me out of Christianity. Oh. <laughs> like, which is so funny because it's like, that that's what everyone said. Like everyone was saying Rob Bell is driving the youth out of the church. And he did.
0: Yeah, <laughs> he drove interesting. Me out. Okay. I mean, um,
1: uh... I, mean I, I still, I have a lot of affection for Rob Bell now. Um, I actually just listened to his, audiobook on Leviticus, like a commentary on Leviticus. And it was rad. Like, I highly recommend if you've ever thought Leviticus was boring to read Rob Bell talk about it for 10 hours. Um, But yeah, it was like an interesting thing where like the Christian world's biggest fears, like in that moment, were all very true, like in my life.
0: Wow. Wow. This is okay. So now I I, I think we want to talk about now another born-again experience you would have maybe talk a little bit about that
1: um yeah I you know I start grad school kind of not anything I, like I you know I signed up to go to grad school because I'm interested in religion obviously like what else am I going to study <laughs> um and so I you know i I'm, I finished undergrad and I have a lot of like wild experiences meeting various Christian people I sat you know, in my last history of Christianity class in undergrad, I sat in between a nun um, and an, inc- an Orthodox Presbyterian <laughs> who <laughs> had opinions about each other. Um, and I, re- I remember looking at him because he was, he, you know, he, he loved John Calvin um, and he like bled Tulip and he was getting ready to go to the Orthodox Presbyterian seminary in California. And I asked him like what he like makes of India, like the nation of India, given that India is not Christian. And he just looked at me with like all the seriousness in the world. And he was like, oh, that's a vessel of God's wrath. So I was like, what is, Chris- what is, I was Christian. This isn't, what? Um, and so, you know, I, I decided I'm gonna go to grad school. I'm gonna study religion. And I'm interested in the 19th century because all these religions that I was interested in come out of the 19th century. Like what mm-hmm. is happening in the 19th century? And, um, we'll kind of get to a story about how I end up studying Mormons. But in the middle of this, I'm going to be doing my doctoral exams. And my major field is American religion. My minor field is history of Christianity. So I had to read the history of Christianity. Um, and in the midst of reading them, the man that I you know, was being uh, was four square with <laughs> um, for a while, uh, we actually get uh, we're going on a trip, we get engaged, we don't end up getting married. But um, we're going on a trip to Europe as I'm in the middle of reading for my exams. And I read a book right before we leave on this trip called Christ's Church's Purely Reformed, A Social History of Calvinism. And I was so mad at the Reformation because <laughs> I like, <laughs> I realized, I mean, I, it was like the first book really on the Reformation I'd ever read. And I realized a lot of my ideas about the Reformation was a caricature. Um, being, you know, being Pentecostal, I thought, Roman Catholics were the cult of Mary. (laughs) I thought like I had a lot of opinions based on a vision of the reformation that wasn't historically accurate. And so I was reading this book and I was so, there's like scenes of like the hosts being fed to dogs and reformers killing people and reformers like crushing statues. And I was like viscerally mad and I didn't really know why because I'm not invested in this. And in a perfect storm, we go on a trip and we land in Rome on our cruise And I had just read this book and we get in line, you know, six hour wait to go in St. Peter's Peter's Basilica. I walk inside and I'm like, well, I'm a Roman Catholic now, that's it.
0: Just like that, you had this Damascus Road experience, you walk into into St. Peter's Cathedral and bam, you say, I'm a Catholic, I'm a believer.
1: Which is so funny because it's a born again Pentecostal experience, but it's for a religion that, you know, does not usually have markers of that usually you know, usually people don't convert to Catholicism. um, And if they do, it's kind of a slower process of um, reading history or, you know, which I had been doing, but um, I very much had a moment where I like, I see the pieta, I see the altar. um, There's a little sign next to the altar that says here lies Peter, the first Pope. Um, And I was like, well, there he is. And my fiance at the time, he was just like, no, you you don't believe this. Like, come on. And I was just like, I've never believed anything more than in this moment than Peter is right there. And, you know, I get on the Vatican Wi-Fi, I I email, I like Google the San Juan Capistrano, California Basilica where, you know, my grandmother went and I, you know, find the religious education email and I'm like, how do I become a Catholic? And I start RCIA right when I get home from the trip.
0: Wow, that's just amazing. So uh, I'm curious, you know, so you're a practicing Catholic. Um, one of the things I thought was really cool last year at the Mormon History Association, um, they had you do one of the prayers for one of the luncheons, and you, you went full Catholic, you did your Mary and your sign of the cross and all that good stuff. Uh,
1: I did. I, I did. Um, yeah, I, I, so that Mormon History Association at the lunch, a lot, they, I mean, they ask a lot of people to do the prayer. I know that um, John Turner, who wrote Brigham Young Pioneer Prophet, he's done the prayer, he's not Mormon. Um, so that's I mean that is absolutely part of the tradition of just letting the diverse Mormon studies community do the prayer. I um, mean I actually had um someone after that was like, you did the whole Catholic thing. And I was like, Yeah, I mean I am Catholic, we cross ourselves before we pray. Um, and I actually had a really interesting experience after with because you know, I you know, you say like in the name of Jesus, but then as a Catholic, I always add through the intercession of Our Lady of Sorrows, who's the version of mary that i'm most closely um i did a consecration for her it's a whole thing um but a woman came up to me after really emotional about it and she was like who is our lady of sorrows mormon feminists have been looking for heavenly mother forever like what is what is happening um and so i had like a pretty extended conversation with a woman who um, is part of the mormon feminist community she's also a great scholar of course um about And so I think what's interesting about Mormon History Association allowing diverse religious people to do the prayer is it ends up leading to these really interesting conversations about this community that everyone assumes is Mormon, (laughs) Um, until you have a woman invoking Our Lady of Sorrows at the lunch prayer, Um, and then it's like, I don't, what is this, so uh, yeah, I, I did the I did a very Catholic prayer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so you can tell, Christine, I'm I'm a bit of a fanboy, you know, <laughs> because I'm <laughs> telling you all these things, and I but I find it so interesting that you did that, and, I, and that really struck me. I was like, okay, this is really really cool, and I'm so glad you did that, and I think it's really awesome that the Mormon History Association affords different voices to be heard in the context of prayer, which I think is really cool. Props to that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, Mormon studies generally has a long history. Of um, devotional scholarship um, and what they called disciple scholars of creating, like BYU, like the Maxwell Institute is really invested in creating disciple scholars, um, which you know has a, a long tradition with Leonard Arrington, etc. Um, but I, I have appreciated that they're also like willing to talk about what that looks like for people who aren't Mormon.
0: That's great. So you uh, you were we were talking off camera about a, a particular book you might recommend about Catholicism that you might want to share with the audience.
1: Uh, Yeah, I have
0: two actually, I lied. So
1: um, it's not really about Catholicism, but if anyone's interested in the the history of Christianity, um, there's a really great book called The Documents of the Christian Church. Um, It's by Oxford. It's literally just the primary documents starting with Eusebius of Caesarea, um, who wrote the first history of Christianity in the year like 33, 30, no. It was like the year like 43 or something. 63 is the year. Um, And then it goes all the way to like the British churches in the 17th century, Vatican II, and it's all the primary documents of the the church. Um, And then one that I just really love um, that kind of really exemplifies the things that I find compelling about Catholicism, um, Carolyn Walker Bynum is a scholar who does incredible work on early and medieval Catholic history. Um, She wrote a book called Holy Feast, Holy Fast, Religious Significance of Food to Medieval Women. Um, And it's just, it's a really fascinating history of how food has operated in the lives of medieval women. Um, And one of the things that I find so interesting about it is every time I read about medieval Catholicism, uh, you know, Catholics have this vision of their church as being the the most authentic one. Uh, We have never changed. Um, and I love reading medieval Catholicism because I, I look at it and I'm like, well, I'm not this religion, like whatever this is, is not me. Um, and so I, it, it's such a fascinating look, especially at what religious
0: women of that time
1: were doing. And it's, yeah, it's a rad book. So.
0: Recommend cool. that. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, was there anything else you wanted to share about your Catholic experience? Um,
1: no, I mean I'm just I'm still Catholic. <laughs> okay,
0: great. This is awesome. Yeah, I've I've got some friends who uh, MDiv uh, went to Steubenville, uh, Franciscan University. I've met Scott Hahn, um, stuff like that. So I'm familiar. I got a lot of good Shout out to all my oh, Catholic Rome, friends.
1: Rome, sweet home.
0: That's right.
1: Have you read Rome, sweet? Have you read Rome, sweet home?
0: Um, I I've um, I actually I, I I think I've read part of it. Um, this was when I was getting into my debates when I was still a Calvinist and I'd get into debates with the Catholics, and I'd read their stuff, and it's got, I don't know, anything like, that. like I tell people, I used to be a Calvinist, and then I found Jesus, um, but uh, it, it, it's it's interesting stuff. I, um, I, I, I'm fascinated by Catholicism, too. As a matter of fact, there was a time where I got this close, this close. You so. take converts. Yeah, I know you do, <laughs> so uh, that's the whole point of this. Apparently, maybe, maybe it's not the Mormons that are going to convert me. It's probably going to be you,
1: I mean I mean for those and for those who don't know Scott Hahn is kind of like the Catholic yes. apologist. Yes. Um, he has written so many books on different aspects of Catholic faith like the the Lamb Supper, the Wedding Supper of the Lamb, no, the Lamb Supper, which is about the Eucharist, um Hail Holy Queen, which is about Catholic devotion to Mary, um like he he kind of and he does it like through the Bible and through like a very Protestant lens because he's a convert from Protestantism. So um, if anyone's interested in what Catholic apologetics looks like, um it's interesting because he does it very Protestant.
0: Yeah. yeah, I sat in one of his classes and it was like, it was very Protestant in uh, its orientation. He, he accepts, he does modern biblical scholarship in the, within the Catholic context, which is a really fascinating thing.
1: Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, he's interesting.
0: Yeah, he is. So um, what I want to now transition to is this. Okay, so we got this Catholic convert and you're stu- doing religious studies Um, You were uh, one of your areas of study was 19th century communitarianism. I think we should probably talk about that because that kind of leads us how you end up studying Mormonism and and most specifically Mormon fundamentalism.
1: Yeah, um, I have a book recommendation. Um, Oh, sure, please. I was interested in communitarianism. So the 19th century was a time of like people living communally um, for religion. So like when Mormons think of the United Order, they weren't alone in this vision. So there's a great book called America's Communal Utopias. Um, it's an edited volume that it cover. I mean, it covers Mormonism, it covers Carush Unity, it covers Oneida, it covers the Shakers, it covers all of the major communitarian religions. Um, and I originally, I mean, I was interested in all of them. Oneida was super interesting to me, but the other one that I was just so into was the Shakers. So, anyone's interested, Shaker experience in America, awesome. I would recommend. Um, but then, you know, I'm in this class where I'm doing. American communal utopias. And what do I get assigned by but rough stone rolling? Okay. And, you know, I sit down to read, you know, in, in grad, grad programs, you're having to read usually a, like a book per class per week. And, you know, I'm like visiting my parents and I sit down at the kitchen table and I crack open rough stone rolling and I do not stop. I, I read it in two days. Um, it, it just consumed. Oh, I got, I got, is your shiny?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I have the matte cover.
0: Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I've, I've read this baby at least three or four times, man.
1: Yeah. It's a, I mean, I mean, it changed my life. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I couldn't put it down. I didn't like my parents were just like, kept walking by the kitchen table to me, just like not putting down this book for two days straight. And I was just like, this is this is what I need to study. Like this is this is it. Like this oh, is yeah. the history. Um, I end up getting um, Mike Quinn's Magic Worldview next. That's the next book I read. Um, and then in the midst of that, I I mean I I, re- I read Sidney Alstrom's Religious History of the American People. Highly recommend. It's huge, mm-hmm. but it's like the book. <laughs> yep. um, and I also, if, I mean, Catherine Albany's Republic of Mind and Spirit, it's another massive book, but highly recommend Mormons make a, make a press make a like splash in that one. Um, and I, that was it. I was like, this is incredible. Um, I end up going to the woman who becomes my advisor, um, Dr. Amanda Lucia. And I was like, I think I want to study the Mormons. And she was like, okay, why? <laughs> like, Okay. And she tells me to go to, you know, she's like, you're, you're an ethnographer, you study living people, you need to like, why don't you like go to, go to church or something, like go hang out with them. And I did. And there was, you know, I've said this a few times and it's not in any way to be inflammatory or offensive, but I went into an LDS um, Institute and then to a YSA ward. And there was like a level of like kind of disappointment where it wasn't rust and rolling, right. Mm -hmm. It wasn't there wasn't communitarianism. No, I mean, you know, they they still have this idea of consecration, but no one's, you know, doing like, no one's building the United Order. The United Order of is gone. Um, And that was kind of like a bummer. Like no one's talking about Kolob um, just on the regular. Polygamy is, of course, not there in a visible way. And so I was just like, what's a Mormon? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What is a Mormon? And so that was that was kind of my early wondering of what is Mormonism if it's not, if it's not rough stone rolling.
0: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so this is, this is what probably kind of prompts you to maybe look at other uh, expressions of Mormonism because maybe some of them are more closely aligned with what we could look at is 19th century Mormonism.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I, I mean, yeah, I end up meeting, I didn't know Mormon fundamentalism was a thing. I didn't even, I didn't know Mormonism was a thing really until I read Rough Stone Rolling. I knew that I had, you know, in high school, there were two people who were Mormon. Um, one of them went to seminary in the morning, but like I didn't, you know, he was also like kept, like on the surf team. <laughs> like I don't, I don't know what a Mormon is. Um, and so I definitely didn't know what a Mormon fundamentalist was. Like that was not part of my purview. Um, but as I started doing um you know i I go to utah i moved to utah um to start doing archival work and uh through sunstone and other things i ended up meeting mormon fundamentalists Mm -hmm. and i was like oh i found the mormons (laughs) and so i mean i you know i have a lot of thoughts on what we mean by modern mormonism and authentic mormonism and you know, a lot of people say if Joseph Smith were to come back, he would think the FLDS are his. Um, I don't think that's true. I mean, I don't think there's any Mormonism that l- looks like what Joseph Smith was doing. Um, you know, all Mormonisms are modern, <laughs> that they're around right now. Um, and Good so, point. but I but I meet Mormon fundamentalists and um, I, I just become so interested and not interested in the polygamy. I mean, a lot of people are really interested in polygamy. And I mean, I've written about polygamy. But I just become really interested in how their doctrine works. And um, because I, I think that I think Mormon fundamentalism is very often collapsed into being synonymous with polygamy. But but there's so much more about Mormon fundamentalism. I mean, I wrote an article recently on Joseph Smith being the Holy Ghost. Like, that's a rad idea. That is a doctrine that deserves to be talked about a little more, um, and has nothing to do with polygamy. (laughs) So they have their own unique set of ideas and beliefs about the world. Um, And I I just became, that was it. I was going to study Mormon fundamentalism. Um, At the time, I mean, Still, there's there's a lot of great resources on that. Craig Foster and Marianne Watson's American Polygamy is great. Um, one of the earliest books I read was um, Martha Bradley is Kidnapped from that land. Oh um, yeah, the Short Creek Raid, the mm-hmm. um, 1953 Short Creek Raid really transformed Short Creek. Um, I argue it like created what the FLDs became. Um, highly recommend. And then um, my, I mean, kind of like the the book is. Um, Brian Hales' Modern Polygamy and Mormon Fundamentalism, the generations after the manifesto. And um, I hear, you know, I hear Brian Hales get kind of a bad rap as being like an apologist. Um, but I am here to say that, you know, I don't necessarily agree, of course, with Brian's conclusions, because if I did, I would be a member of the church. Um, but there was no one that did the heavy lifting of going through the documents of writing the early histories better than Brian Hales. Like he, He carried the study of Mormon fundamentalism for years. And so um, he deserves a lot of credit for, like a lot of credit for the archival work and the
0: document digging that he did. So you're saying this is very unique because a lot of people get interested in fundamentalism because of polygamy, but it wasn't that. It was their doctrines. And one of your favorite doctrines, if you will, is the Adam God one. Maybe talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things I find interest. I mean, yes, people really like polygamy, but I mean, at the, like I went into studying Mormonism having read about the Shakers who are celibate and reading about Oneida who did complex marriage. Mm-hmm. And so, which, you know, has a polygamy element. Um, and so the polygamy thing wasn't interesting. I mean, it was, but it wasn't like the thing to me because then everyone was doing sex weird in the 19th century. Like yep. <laughs> it was a hallmark. So um, I went into, I guess I went into Mormonism without that being this like shocking thing. Um, I mean, the way Mormons do it is of course interesting, but it wasn't the thing. But um, I noticed that, you know, it's always so funny when you meet evangelicals who have like the anti-Mormon literature and then you quickly realize that anti-Mormon literature is just fundamentalist doctrine. <laughs> like I, I went to a, um, the Manti pageant with a group of fundamentalist missionaries. And one of the preachers was like, did you know? they thought that Adam was God. And this sweet kid was like, yeah, I still think that.
0: That's right.
1: Like, and so how do you, I mean, how do evangelicals combat Mormon yeah. That's, that's they, they would be the hardest Mormons to proselyte to because they believe in polygamy. They believe Adam is God. They believe in blood atonement. Like, what are you going to do? You're not going to stump these kids.
0: Um, and actually I think I had that kid on one of my programs too. And he talked about that whole thing. That's great. You go fundies because I love that you are doing that, um, because I think it, it really does throw a curveball to evangelicals. They have, the, they, they have their script. They're supposed to work off of it. <laughs> it's like, no, well, that's not the answer I was expecting. I
1: know. I mean, and I think, you know, I think fundamentalists have um, a particular version of history that they tell, um, but they talk about a lot of those things more openly because they read the Journal of Discourses. Um, and so, was, I mean, from my background, there was a time when I didn't like Mormons. I know. I'm sorry. But like, what, what four square kid? thinks Mormons are going to heaven, right? right? I mean, come on. Um, I need a little grace for that. But, um, so I knew all those talking points. Like I knew that Mormons thought Adam was God when I was foursquare. square. Um, and then, but I, you know, I had a caricature of that in my mind and I had never read the journal of discourses. I had never read the lecture at the veil. Vale. Like I didn't, you know, I had no idea. Um, and then when I was digging into fundamentalist doctrine, um, and mainly like now, you know, I just submitted my book on Joseph Musser, who really developed the doctrine of Adam being God. Um, I realized that it's a very complex system that I would say is kind of foundational for Mormonism that really lays out, you know, Mormons talk about um, the the resurrection of Jesus Christ as kind of an example of how they will be resurrected. Um, But in Adam, there's an example of exaltation, which is super rad to think about. There's an actual example of someone who did exaltation. You can point to him, and his name's Adam, um, and he had a you know in Mormonism. When people talk about um, as God once was, a logical question to me was, okay, well then who was Adam's God, right? Or who mm-hmm. was God's God, not Adam's in LDS Mormonism? And a lot of LDS people, you know, of course, will say like we don't know different answers. Um, but then when I met fundamentalists, and I was like, okay, well who's Adam's God? And they were like Jehovah. Obviously, and I was like, "Well, who's Jehovah's dad?" And they're like, "Elohim." Obviously, like, and they ha- they were just like, "Duh!" Like, and it, it's the Adam God doctrine is interesting because it creates an unbroken chain of priesthood through all eternity. That it, I mean, it just, it yeah. So it, it makes it an it, it's a really compelling doctrine, I think, that makes exaltation make a lot of sense. It makes a lot of the uh, a lot of threads of Mormonism make sense that are no longer part of the LDS Church. So. No, I
0: just fell in love with it. So, what, what, what is, has been one of your biggest takeaways engaging Mormonism and Mormon fundamentalism? But just maybe, just something that you want to impart to the audience, or something that was, would maybe changed your mind on something, or just kind of struck you. Um, you know, whatever you want to elaborate on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think with Mormon, I mean, Mormon fundamentalism, probably I get, you know, I get the most questions about it, like, because people have a very particular vision of what a Mormon fundamentalist is based on media and everything. Um, and I get a lot of questions of like, aren't they just weird? Um, and I mean, I think especially with, um, well, I remember one of the first times I was talking to my mom and about Mormonism and she was like, don't they think that God has a body? And like, cause that was a really foreign idea to most people and she didn't say it, but I could see in her eyes that she was like, really like, what, how does that? Um, And I was like, yeah, but I think Jesus becomes a wafer every day. Right. And so like, yeah, like Mormonism might be weird, but like, it's absolutely no weirder than anyone else. Like we're all just all just people. Um, And so that was kind of, I think, you know, becoming Catholic at the same time that I'm studying Mormonism really put a lot of people's criticisms of Mormonism into perspective. Um, I mean, there's definitely things in Mormonism I don't agree with. If I did, I would be a Mormon. Um, But that's kind of the biggest thing is, you know, studying religion academically is a really kind of powerful way of humanizing people. And so that, I mean, that's kind of why I, I encourage people to study religion because it really humanizes the human experience.
0: And not only study it, but then engage the folk and, yeah. and you learn so much, you know, I'll just, my, uh, my, my interview with Ann Wilde's really good. Um, if you want to kind of get to know her, that's, that will probably be her last interview she'll ever give. Um, yeah. And uh, also I had like seven different members from the Christ branch uh, uh, come. And I think one of that, one of those kids was the one that was one of those missionaries. And he gives this really wild story about battling demons and becoming born again, Born again, uh, pretty interesting stuff. So, but when I was done, this was a Saturday night. Okay. It's a Saturday night. And it's, it's like, I'm, we finished up like at 11 o'clock Eastern time and, and, and Benjamin Schaefer set it up, you know, cause it was during their general conference. And I thought, um, this was one of the greatest Saturday nights I've ever had. Now I have to tell you, I used to go out and party a lot and drink. So I say... It's definitely in the top five all-time greatest Saturdays I ever had, but I at least remember this one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was fun because one of the things that I realized was there's are such nice people. And I thought I could be neighbors with all those seven of those people, including, I mean, we had like a 17-year-old girl all the way to the, the, the founding prophet's last surviving widow came on the program and everybody in between. And it was so cool. And it was so humanizing. I really liked everybody.
1: Yeah, it, it's, I mean, I think that's kind of what I usually say when people are like, well, they're a cult. And I'm like, well, why don't you like talk to them? Like, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> like, yeah. this, isn't, this isn't hard. Um, and I mean, yeah, I think, I think studying people is, I think it's an important thing. Mormon fundamentalism generally has had a lot of history done of it. Um, it hasn't had a lot of ethnography. Um, Janet Benyon is kind of noteworthy as being someone who, st- who went and talked to people and studied people. Um, but I think it really adds a, it really adds contours to the study of Mormonism that have really been missing.
0: So, um, before we, I'm going to ask you to preview Sunstone, what's coming up, but I'd like for maybe you to, if you don't mind moving your camera and maybe talk about some of these interesting, uh, things that are hanging on your wall behind you. Um,
1: sure. Uh, (laughs) so I have Truth Magazine, uh, one of the first issues. um, And Truth
0: was the fundamentalist, uh, newspaper, right? Publication?
1: Yeah. So this is um, one of the, it's the original of Truth Magazine, um, the third volume. Um, Brian Buchanan at Benchmark Books sent this to me when I submitted my manuscript for um, the biography I'm doing of Joseph Musser. Um, Joseph Musser was the editor of Truth Magazine. Um, And so I had, I mean, I'm probably the only Gentile that has read every single issue of Truth and of its sequel, Star of Truth, that his son did. Um, And so Brian sent me that um, to kind of congratulate me um this is a plaque that if you go down to short creek and there's some in salt lake um zion is hangs over the doors um this one was belonged to Rulin jeff's wow um his his, um grandson took it off the house um before he passed um and i remember he took him he was like you know he took him down and i was like what are you gonna do with that like i don't think you what are you going to do? Like, and so he gave, he gave me one of them. He gave, um, someone another one. Um, I have the first vision. It's a modern representation of the first vision. Um, and on it are puffy stickers that say keep sweet. And it's a puffy sticker of Warren Jeffs. Um, if you go down to short Creek, um, this was years ago, but when the houses first foreclosed, there was a lot of stuff left in them. Um, and one of the main things left in in the hair rooms were stickers on the window on the mirrors, um, that would were either of Warren or of the phrase keep sweet. So um, huh. I have the I have Salt Lake. Um, I have the articles of faith that I bought from the dairy the dairy store in Short Creek. Um, but LDS people might find it interesting that this is the articles of faith of the FLDS. Oh wow. They're the Articles of Faith, are the ones you you know. Um, and of course, Joseph. Cool. Um, and then I've Rulon, another sign from Rulon and I have a pair of headphones. A lot of people don't know that the early fundamentalist movement was bankrolled by the inventor of headphones, Nathaniel Baldwin. Uh, <laughs> your face. Wow. Like, um, and so I have one of the original headphones that were produced and um, one of the pamphlets that he published, one of the only ones that he published himself. Um, and so, yeah, the uh, headphones, Nathaniel Baldwin, his factory employed most of the early fundamentalists okay. and most of like a lot of the money went to producing their publication. So that's wow. my like weird Mormon wall.
0: <laughs> I love it. It's so awesome you sharing that with us today. I think it's so cool. Um, I wanted to ask you, before we talk about previewing Sunstone, I, were there any other books that you wanted to talk about to the audience?
1: Um, I was going to say Pioneer Prophet. Um, I really recommend... Um, if you're into American religious history, um, John Butler, Awash in a Sea of Faith. I think that's a really incredible book. And then um, The Democratization of American Christianity by Nathan Hatch. Um, it talks about Mormonism, but it talks about really kind of this, it's about the second great awakening. And it touches on what happened in the second great awakening that allowed for so many religions to flourish, one being, of course, Mormonism.
0: Okay, great. Thanks for sharing that. So I so Sunstone's coming up, folks. I plan I'm planning on releasing this episode before Sunstone, if all goes according to plan. So why don't you kind of preview for the audience what you're going to be doing at Sunstone? I guess you're doing something with Moroni uh, Lopez Jessup. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Um, so I love Sunstone. It's one of my favorite things that I do every year. So I hope everyone comes. Um Moroni and I are doing a panel on the priesthood and temple restrictions in fundamentalism. Um, I've written about the temple. So Mormon fundamentalists, most of them with the exception of two um, groups uphold the priesthood and temple ban. That is, that still is part of Mormon fundamentalism. Um, I've written about how my argument is that that didn't become a fundamental of fundamentalism until the LDS church decided to lift it. Uh, We don't see a lot of reference to the ban in fundamentalism until the seventies. So I'm gonna be talking about that kind of that history. And then Moroni is gonna be sharing his own experience um, with the priesthood ban, um, as well as talking about a new movement um, that is lifting the ban.
0: Okay, yeah, that's interesting stuff. I, th- I think I, I can see fundamentalism heading in that direction. I think it's. Uh...
1: I mean, I think I think it can go both ways. I mean, I definitely think there's a reactionary element to. Mm-hmm. I mean, fundamentalism as a tradition, it was reacting to something, mm-hmm. um, but we do know that um, Ross LeBaron Senior did adopt ritually adopt through the law of adoption a black man. So there's question on whether the LeBaron line has a potential to lift the ban. Um, And then Moroni has talked about how in an independent group in Missouri, they have had an interracial marriage um, ceiling. So we'll see, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what we're at. That's our Sunstone presentation. We're asking like, is there a path in fundamentalism that is inclusive of all people? We'll see. Stay
0: tuned folks, you know, we're gonna hear the latest, what's gonna be the next big doctrinal, reformation perhaps within a movement and and who knows what's going to happen is very fascinating stuff and it's really cool because like i get to talk to these people and hear like i was just talking to somebody on the phone the other day about the missouri things like oh that's right i remember reading about that so it's fascinating stuff to see all that mormonism is just like the most interesting like you know like you study all these other religions and i was on mormon stories and i talked about how i was really just personally just interested in all these other religions myself but i said mormonism just kept pulling me back you know i couldn't get enough of it
1: I know, I mean, I keep saying, like, I have someone, like, I keep wondering, like, maybe y'all just study the Shakers, or, you know, um, my boyfriend was raised Mennonite and going up to Canada to see him, um, and seeing where he grew up, I was like, oh, like, I could just study the Mennonites, but, and then I'm, like, suddenly, like, waist-deep in, like, new Mormon projects,
0: so. Yeah, you know, not the- that's pretty well. Now, did you, uh, yeah. Rebecca Jensen, she's a Mennonite who wrote that book, uh, Liminal Sovereignty. I think you met her last year, right? That was a really cool book, and I had her on.
1: Uh, yeah, and she just spoke at the National Endowment for Humanities um, Group Institute that we're doing on Mormonism and Mexico. So yeah, I mean, her work on that, comparing the comparative work on how Mennonites and Mormons were treated in Mexico, is super interesting
0: for it sure. It really is, it is. Yeah. So folks, you know, check out my catalog because I've talked to a lot of these people. Uh, Christina, you know, I really appreciate you coming on the program today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm. I mean, it's so weird to talk about not mormonism and talking yeah. about the four square church
0: <laughs> See, this is where <laughs> the so convergence happens the convergence happens here on this channel and i think it's good because you're educated like, i like to bring on ministers from different churches theologians to explain their history and so mm-hmm. i think now the audience has a better understanding of the four square movement and also not denominationalism and yeah your catholic faith and how much it means to you and i think these these are good things i think it's really cool oh and you have yeah, any final words you. to share with the audience or you good
1: I uh, just hope to see you all at Sunstone.
0: See you all at Sunstone. I'm going to be the uh, uh, the umpire for the kickball game between the Exmos and the uh, Fundamentalists. So I'm very excited about that. Professor.
1: I did that. I was the umpire the inaugural one. So I think you're my successor.
0: Oh, this is great. Awesome sauce. Love it. So folks, I want to thank you so much for watching the program today. I just want to remind you to uh, like and subscribe and uh, don't forget to uh, hit the like button uh, on this video. Uh, We're available on all the major podcasts. Anthony's uh, working, slaving away to get the rest of our podcast stuff. uh, So check us out on Spotify and Apple. uh, Mormonbookreviews.com. That's the merch store. So if you're interested in purchasing some of our lovely merch, please go to mormonbookreviews.com. And for those of you who would like to support the channel on both PayPal and or Patreon, I will leave links in the description. I really do appreciate it because really the channel funds my trips like to Sunstone, but it it costs a lot of money and I'm trying to get more built up so I can buy cameras, upgrade my equipment, but but a lot of my money goes towards travel budget. So those of you who have a little extra money that you want to throw to this little channel, it's greatly appreciated. So folks, you have yourself a great day. Enjoy this really, really hot summer that we're all experiencing and uh, be well.